Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. The email from my son's teacher came at 4 p.m. on a Friday. It opened with a greeting that had already become eerily familiar. I hope everyone is doing well in this unique time. I'd been anxiously awaiting the email for weeks. COVID was ripping through much of the country, especially the East Coast. My office had already closed. My son Benjamin's school was, of course, next. Okay, I remember telling myself, okay, a few weeks. I can do this for a few weeks. This would be single parenting with a full-time job and no childcare support. This would be frantically working from the table in the kitchen while my then five-year-old son logged on to his pre-K morning meeting via Zoom, then FaceTiming with his grandparents and virtual music lessons with a former babysitter. But when I actually read the email, my stomach sank. Our own distance learning plans will include ways to create your own makerspace, information on math and reading comprehension questions, science projects, support for nature walks or hikes, journal prompts, more information on distance learning for pre-K, and other academic skills to practice. Oh my God, I thought, I can't do this. Over the next year and a half, I would churn through five different childcare arrangements as my son completed pre-K and began virtual and later hybrid kindergarten. I have never felt more alone, and I know that millions of parents were feeling that exact same way, all while our nation's caregiving workforce was being hung out to dry. And I just kept thinking, it doesn't have to be this way. I'm Julie Kohler, and this is White Picket Fence. You may have listened to this show's first season. We focused on the fractured, and often frustrating, politics of white women. Now we're focusing on the country's caregiving crisis, and how so many of the ideologies that we interrogated in season one, about race, gender, families, the economy, and yes, white women, led us to a point where so many of us are cracking. So, okay, I know that at first glance, our topic this time around seems different. But to me, white women's politics and the caregiving crisis are two parts of a larger story. It's a story about power. If season one explored how a set of intersecting beliefs has shaped who has political power and how that power is maintained, season two is about how that power is used. Specifically, how the politics that we examined in season one have led to policies that have left families, and women in particular, largely on our own. Last season, we examined why Trump's election served as a great political awakening for millions of white women. This time around, we'll explore how COVID-19 has led to a similar awakening around what we'll call care infrastructure. So let's start from that inciting moment, or rather, a few weeks before it, to that sparkly, magical time called pre-COVID. So in January, we were celebrating a really important milestone. 
women made up about 50% of the workforce, something that hadn't happened for a decade. That's C. Nicole Mason, head of the Institute for Women's Policy Research. At the start of last year, women in the workforce actually crossed over the 50% line. It was just by 0.04%, but to Nicole, that was huge. Like she said, it hadn't happened for a decade. It was also the second time that it had happened ever. Gender pay gaps were starting to narrow. Women were making their way into more senior positions. Nicole was actually starting to feel cautiously optimistic. And about two months later, when the pandemic hit, all those gains had been wiped out. And over the next few months, 11 million women had fallen out of the workforce, four times the rate of men. And when we started to look at the numbers, what we saw was that the sectors that were being hardest hit were sectors that were dominated by women, leisure, hospitality, education, uh, and healthcare. Many of those sectors were dominated by women of color and lower wage workers. And then when schools and daycares closed, the job losses became even more severe for women and women of color. The loss came in two parts. Women-dominated fields, like service and hospitality industries, had big layoffs. Our economy was in free fall, and the workforce suddenly looked a lot different. And then, on top of that, something was happening with moms. I started getting all these text messages from friends who are also mothers saying, I can't believe you're not writing about this. Why are the moms doing all of this? What's going to happen to our jobs? Are we going to have to quit? Claire Kane Miller is a reporter for The New York Times, covering families, gender, and the workforce. With the pandemic, the issues that she had covered for years had suddenly moved front and center. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is like the story of my beat. And I haven't had any time to sit and breathe and think about how to cover this because I've been trying to figure out what to do with my children and how to do like the bare minimum at work while stocking up on sanitizer and food and masks and figuring out what's happening. We've all got horror stories from this period. Claire herself was covering the crisis while trying to raise a three-year-old and a seven-year-old who were suddenly at home full-time. Nicole, who we spoke with earlier, is a single parent to 12-year-old twins. She, too, was struggling to supervise virtual education, all while starting a new job, where she had to make sense of how decades of progress for women just, poof, disappeared, practically overnight. In short, our country was in crisis. I was too. I was struggling to get my son to engage in Zoom pre-K. I couldn't sleep at night. I found myself yelling a lot, then feeling miserable and guilty. When facing big work deadlines, I sometimes just turned on a movie and let my son watch it on repeat while I hid in my bedroom. When people would treat Benjamin's pop-up appearances in work meetings as cute diversions, I felt like screaming in frustration. It's not cute, I wanted to say. I'm dying here. I knew I wasn't alone. Everyone I knew was scrambling. But the message we all received, loud and clear, was that it was up to us to figure it out. And here's the other thing we need to understand. The pandemic was just the breaking point. The conditions for that crisis moment were set long before COVID-19 ever hit American shores. Many of us are just so used to the rat race of juggling work and family responsibilities that we never actually ask, why is it like this? 
but it's worth asking. Because compared to the rest of the world, especially among wealthy industrialized nations, being a parent in the U.S. is harder. One of the biggest differences? Childcare. A key way to understand this difference is to look at how much money a country spends per kid on what's called early care and education. It's basically what Americans understand as daycare and preschool, a caregiving and educational system for kids under the age of five. In a poll of 38 countries, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development found that the average amount of public spending per year, per kid, on this kind of care was a little over $14,000. At the top of the list was Norway. They spend nearly $30,000 per child. At the bottom was the U.S., which, if you're listening to this, and you're a parent, you probably already guessed. Our government spends just $500 per child, annually. So how does that difference actually play out? In Denmark, for example, the government spends $23,000 per year per kid. The average two-year-old goes to childcare, where they're guaranteed a spot. That spot remains theirs until they're 10 years old, shifting into after-school care once they start going to school. The maximum amount that families pay is 25% of the total cost. Oh, and if parents want a nanny or want to stay home with their kids, the government helps pay for that too. Compare that to the U.S. Families spend an average of $1,100 per month, twice what the government pays per year. Of course, things look a lot different depending on where you live. In many large cities, like Washington, D.C., where I live, the average cost of childcare is $19,000 a year for toddlers, $24,000 a year for infants. High-quality programs often have long wait lists and not enough space. In other places, especially rural communities and small towns, there are often childcare deserts. There are simply no programs available. Why? Because running a childcare business is just not very lucrative. It costs a lot more to care for babies and toddlers. They need more supervision. You need more teachers per kid. Then there are the pricey safety regulations. Necessary, of course. And programs must be stocked with developmentally appropriate toys and equipment. A lot of those costs are passed down the line to parents. So how can childcare programs keep costs down? By paying their workers low wages, incredibly low wages. Childcare workers are some of the lowest paid professionals in society, earning on average $12 an hour, a little more than $25,000 a year. In short, our childcare system is what's called a broken marketplace. Bad for business owners, bad for workers, and bad for consumers. When it comes to childcare, I've been way more fortunate than most. When my son was a baby, I hired a nanny to care for him in our home. When he turned one, I put our name on a wait list at a highly regarded preschool in our neighborhood. And shortly after he turned two, he got in. And I live in one of a handful of states and cities that has something rare and incredible, public pre-K. Meaning that when my son turned four, he started attending preschool at our local public elementary school for free. That's actually where he was when the pandemic hit and school shut down. But the bigger question is, why do we spend so little here? Why are public investments in early care and education so rare 
what's going on? Here's Claire Kane Miller. In the United States, we make these issues of caregiving and parenting personal issues and individual things that we're supposed to figure out as individual families and come up with our own solutions. We make caregiving a personal issue. From the top down, that's the mentality. Your kid, your family, your problem to solve. And it's not just our lack of childcare that distinguishes the U.S. from most of its wealthy, industrialized counterparts. So we don't have any paid family leave. We're the only rich country in the world that doesn't have that. We have very, very little support for, for children before age five for childcare or preschool. Um, very poor families have a little bit of support for childcare. A few cities and states have public preschool, but it is still rare. There's very little in the way of reliable aftercare even once children start school. People are on their own to figure out what to do after 3 p.m. when school ends, but the workday hasn't ended. But even though we've reached a point where the workforce was split evenly by gender, caregiving solutions often land disproportionately on the shoulders of women. At the start of 2020, Oxfam calculated that the unpaid labor performed by American women would have cost $1.5 trillion a year. This was pre-pandemic and if they'd been paid a minimum wage. And so in the absence of a safety net, we often end up relying on women to do this work, to step up when there's a caregiving need, to spend their time doing the unpaid labor of either doing the caregiving themselves or trying to find a preschool or a home health aid to figure out how to pay for it. It's, you know, both logistical work and caregiving work. So to recap... At the end of 2019, we had little to no government support for parents, caregiving duties widely viewed as personal issues, women making up more than half the workforce, but still shouldering the majority of family responsibilities. And then came the pandemic, and everything fell apart. From the COVID-19 health crisis snaked a whole set of complementary crises. There was an employment crisis, a housing crisis, a caregiving crisis. And it's something I had, you know, realized in the abstract and I had written about before, but I think that spring when it when schools closed and everything first happened was when it really became very concretely obvious to me what that meant and I think, you know, a lot of people realized for the first time how little structural support there was and how much their entire family and work lives had been depending on these systems that they had individually put in place, and then all of a sudden, everyone lost them all at once. By the end of 2020, we'd lost 30 years of employment progress for women. Nearly one in 10 Black women left the workforce. Many single-parent households were thrown into dire financial straits. As a reporter, Claire was hearing from women across the country, across socioeconomic levels, that they were experiencing financial distress, After all, for many families, women's wages aren't just nice, they're essential. As of 2017, 41% of women served as breadwinners for their families. But there was something else Claire heard in her reporting. Women were losing their senses of self, their identities. What they meant by that was their identity outside of being a mother, that they had all made choices in their lives 
to have another identity besides mother, as we all do, and that they felt like that had been taken away from them. This is their sense of purpose. You know, for many people, it's about financial autonomy and independence. But for everybody, it's a reason to wake up in the morning. You you get something out of, of your job or the work that you do in your community and outside of your home. And I think it's really hard, especially in America. There's been a lot of research that mothers here feel a lot more guilt that they're not doing either of their jobs well, their paid work or their unpaid work. So, okay, we're now nearing the end of 2021. For many of us, things have improved a bit since last March. But the view is far from rosy. Here's Nicole Mason. We still have a long ways to go. We're still witnessing the impact of school and daycare closures on women. It still makes it a bit harder for them to, especially women who have been out of the labor market, difficult for them to reenter and to sustain employment. Because um, even if schools are open across the country, if there's an outbreak, schools close again. So there's still not that level of predictability that we, we know that we need for women to reenter the workforce in significant numbers. These broad numbers also obscure some important distinctions. The unemployment rate for women has dropped significantly, especially since the you know, first few months of, of the pandemic. But there's a small little asterisk The unemployment rate for all women now is about 5%, but when we disaggregate it by by race, Black and Latina women still have disproportionately higher rates compared to white women at, you know, 8 or 9%. So we can understand that recovery is uneven and that some groups of women are having a hard time reentering the labor force. Many women have been unemployed for 27 weeks or more. And the longer you've been out of the workforce, the the harder it is to re-enter. And even if they manage to re-enter, they face a new set of hurdles. So whenever women off-ramp work or leave the workforce, it has an impact on their long-term earnings, short-term earnings, and their um, career mobility. When we talk about unemployment rates, the more immediate effects, paying rent, keeping our homes, buying food, can blind us to the larger implications. The same is true for the gender wage gap. Do you always hear this 80 cents on the dollar? You know, like it may go up a penny or down a penny depending on the year. Your eyes kind of gloss over, but it has real implications because that's less money you have to, you know, invest in your future, to pay for education, to pay for housing and delays buying a house. Women, especially women of color, have a tremendous amount of student loan debt. So that's money that you don't have to like pay down your student loan debt. It takes, it takes you longer. Uh, and for Black and Latina women, it's even worse. Right now, we estimate that it'll pay gap will close by 2056 or something. That's still like 30 years from now. But for Black women, it's 100 years. Uh, and for Latina women, it's we estimate it's about 200 years, more than 200 years. So um, what that means in plain terms is like, I will not see pay equity in my lifetime. My daughter will not, and her daughter will not. When we're able to get a slightly better picture of this landscape, the economic struggle, the caregiving struggle, the being a woman in the workforce struggle, it can feel overwhelming, crushing even, for anyone but especially for parents, 
it can make you throw your hands up and scream, why? Here's Claire again. That's a big question. I think the true answer is that there is still a lot of ambivalence about the role of women in the United States. And there is a lot of ambivalence about whether children should be going to um, caregiving arrangements outside the home or whether it's the mother's responsibility to stay home. Maybe that's actually um, better for the children. There's also just this belief in America that we are responsible for ourselves, um, that we need to solve our problems individually. And then a lot of this is um, deeply rooted in racism. The debate has always been not about whether mothers should work, but about which mothers should work. Nicole had a simpler answer to the big why. White men. White Mm -hmm. men in Congress. uh... Because there's like public support for all of these policies. There's public support for a robust child care infrastructure, paid sick leave, raising the minimum wage. We did the polling. We actually know that this is the case. And we there are sound policies that are presented at both the federal and state level, and then it gets stopped. And we know that it's like critically necessary. The pandemic has shown us so many ways, the ways in which this is really important for, you know, the economic well-being of of women and families. We treat other kinds of infrastructure or other things that we we know we need in order for people to be productive in their work and their, their, their lives and in their communities. So like, how do we reframe the conversation? For the rest of this season, we'll be doing just that, reframing the conversation and interrogating the belief systems that have had so much sway and continue to for many of those white guys in Congress. We'll break down the family, race, gender, and economic ideologies that for decades have resulted in a broken system that hurts all of us next week on White Picket Fence. And those images of white womanhood were only possible because many middle-class white women and certainly upper-class white women could outsource the dirty work in their home. White Picket Fence is a Wonder Media Network production. Our producers are Maddie Foley, Edie Allard, and Taylor Williamson. Executive producer is Jenny Kaplan. Special thanks to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the Shared Ascent Fund for their generous support for this season. We want to hear about your caregiving experiences, especially during the pandemic. Just call 212-655-5048 and leave us a voicemail with your story. We might just play it on the show. That's 212-655-5048.